This paid podcast is a partnership between Slate Studios and Century 21 Real Estate. All uses of trademarks or brands are not meant to convey sponsorship or affiliation of this podcast. From Century 21, this is The Relentless, a podcast about looking at sales differently. As entrepreneurs, we need to constantly evolve, refresh our approach, and these days, that means prioritizing the customer. Because sales is about so much more than transactions. It's about elevating experiences. I'm Kristen Meinzer. I'm an author, entrepreneur, and podcast host. And no matter what job I've had, I've always used my voice to help people. I learned early on that treating people like they matter isn't just the right thing to do. It also makes for good business and great relationships. And that's what this season is all about. We're talking to the visionaries reinventing hospitality and the pioneers who figured out how to create celebrations that don't feel like work. Because The Relentless is about more than the clothes. It's about opening our minds to new possibilities and crushing mediocrity every step of the way. It's time to dream big, embrace change, and stay relentless. Hey everyone, welcome to The Relentless. When you're running a small business, you have to work hard to distinguish yourself from the competition. And that competition is intense. Competition for new business, competition for attention, competition for clients. Sometimes it feels like no matter what field you're in, it can be hard to set yourself apart. These days, a lot of that competition comes from technology. Whether it's a search algorithm driving customers to a competitor or tech that automates what used to be someone's job, every industry is getting disrupted by tech innovations. My guests today have both dealt with disruptive innovation by putting their customers' needs first. Later in the show, I'll talk with an entrepreneur who has her own creative approach to this. But first, I'm going to introduce you to a serial entrepreneur who's managed to build successful businesses in some of today's most competitive markets, mobile gaming, and e-commerce. My name is Che Huang. I am one of the co-founders and the CEO of a company called Box. Over a decade ago, without any background as tech founders, Che and his partners left their day jobs to start a video game studio. They made a big bet that mobile games were going to be the next big thing. And that bet paid off. Soon, they had a few hit games on their hands and they were acquired by a much bigger video game company. From there, Che could have done anything, but he decided to create a brand new startup in an even more crowded field, online retail. We thought to ourselves, we got along early when it came to social gaming. We're starting to see a pattern where I think people are gonna start to buy things on their phone and that e-commerce is gonna become mobile commerce. The name of the business, Boxed.com. Box lets you shop for bulk items, everything from paper towels to potato chips, and they make it easy, convenient, and fun. And when he started the business, he was picking and filling the orders himself in his very own garage. As with his video game company, Che's bet was the same, that more and more people would be ordering bulk items on their phones. And again, that bet has paid off big time. Che Huang, welcome to The Relentless. Hello, Kristen, and everyone listening out there. This is going to be a fun, fun time because we've got a lot to talk about. Oh, we sure do. Now, Che, when you were growing up, did you think you would become an entrepreneur? I always had inklings of it. Uh, I never thought I would be 
a toilet paper salesperson, which I basically am now. And that's what Box really does. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, I think if you told me when I was in middle school that you'd end up becoming an entrepreneur, probably would not have shocked me. Would have shocked my parents because they, they had me dead set on being a doctor. But I wouldn't have been shocked because I, I kind of knew where my interests were. But interestingly, that's not really what your educational path was. You, after college, taught English in Japan, and then you went into law. What got you from that track to the startup world? Yeah, it was a roundabout kind of path that I took uh, (laughs) to end up being an entrepreneur, right? Graduated college, went to countryside Japan to teach English, came back to the U.S. for law school, went to a law firm, left the law firm to a video game startup, uh, and then now to Box. I'm just curious, how how do you go from, you know, uh, studying law, teaching English and so on, to the startup world? Is it something that in between you had to take a bunch of classes? Is it one day in law school you said, you know what, as soon as I graduate, I'm starting a video game company? How did that work? Yeah. So I like to say that for all the law firm associates out there, when they're at their desk at 3 a.m., like you, you definitely contemplate life when you're reading documents at 3 a.m. <laughs> in, in an office <laughs> or the sixth torts. night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, so, but um, uh, basically what happened was that, you know, I started my legal career on September 15th, 2008. And that was about nine hours after Lehman Brothers collapsed. Mm. You wake up in the morning, I had new shoes, a new suit, a new briefcase, walking into Times Square for the rest of my life. And then out of the corner of my eye, I'm like, wow, that's a lot of people on the street. And it was because they shut off the entire Lehman Brothers building. And there were thousands of people pouring onto the street uh, with bankers boxes. And so I was pretty committed to doing something outside of the law after that run. And so right around 2009, a friend of mine uh, reached out uh, and said, hey, we're making games for this new thing called the iPhone. Do you have one? I'm like, yes, I have an iPhone. You know, I had the (laughs) iPhone 2G. And we went out and did it. And as it launched, I left my job to pursue the gaming company full-time. All right. So your friends invite you to join their mobile gaming company. But let's be real, there have always been a lot of video game companies out there. Uh, What made you decide to take this risk? And how did you figure out your niche within that space? Looking back, I'd have to say that, you know, if I gave other folks that's like advice I don't know if I could give them the advice of just like quitting your job cold turkey during the middle of the worst recession since the Great Depression uh, <laughs> uh, to go make video games. Um, but really, it was a bet on a new technology. And we just made a bet that these machines were going to become more and more powerful. And so you would be able to play better games, have more immersive experiences and do so much more with it. And so it seemed like a rocket ship about to take off. And we just kind of jumped on it. Now, the consternation of like, oh my gosh, we just quit our jobs because we all had full-time jobs and, and, and really great health insurance too, you know, <laughs> um, it fully hits you as you're about to jump ship and go off in this new ride. But I'd like to say that once you dive off into the deep end, you know, you're just thinking about how do I survive rather than, hey, how do I get back to where I was? And so mm-hmm. all that anxiety, all that what ifs, you know, I just remember walking out of that office that night, my last night there. And, you know, I didn't really look back. I just felt like, well, I did it. I, I quit my job. This better work now. So all of that kind of melted away. And, I mean, your bet clearly paid off. Uh, you sold the company. I mean, that's everyone's dream, right? Make a startup and then have that startup sell. And so, 
after that, you pretty much could have done anything with your life. But instead of just, you know, sitting back or taking a vacation, you decided to start a whole new company and not in the gaming space. Why e-commerce? I mean, when I look at these two companies, they, at least on the surface, video gaming versus e-commerce, they seem so different. Definitely very different. And I think the common nexus between the two is being ahead of where consumer adoption is of that technology of that moment. And so in 2013, we thought to ourselves, you know what? Like we got along early when it came to social gaming. We're starting to see a pattern where I think people are going to start to buy things on their phone and that e-commerce is going to become mobile commerce. If you go back to 2012, uh, 2013, I know it seems very obvious now, but when you go back to that era, if you will, and you ask even the most forward-thinking venture capitalists, they were not buying consumer packaged goods on their mobile device. Now, it seems like a no-brainer, but again, just different era almost uh, uh, seven, eight years ago. For people who aren't familiar with what Boxed is or maybe only know that you sell toilet paper and cereal but don't know much else, what is your elevator pitch explaining what it is? So we do offer two-day delivery to just about anywhere in the U.S. for wholesale goods that you can easily build a basket of eight to 10 trusted items around. So overall, we are billed as that wholesaler for an on-the-go or mobile generation. So you only carry a few products, and you say most of your customers only buy like the same eight or nine or 10 products over and over again. How many products exactly do you carry? Yeah, right now we carry anything from 2,000 to 2,500 products in our fulfillment centers. Um, So we're constantly growing it, but at the same time, we have no aspirations of wanting to be the everything store. So we want to eventually become the everything you need store so that all those fast moving items that you need to power your office or your household, you'd buy from Boxed. But none of the super long tail stuff that a random person is going to search once a month for. So overall, we are those consumer packaged goods and just the ones that you need. And how did you choose those specific items, those 2,000 or 2,500? In the beginning, it was definitely more art than science. Uh, (laughs) And so what you basically had was me being the head buyer and going out and picking like the first 200 items we were going to sell. Now, though, there's a lot more science as well. You know, we build our own software that that powers the entire business. So it's looking at different trends, both on the platform and off the platform to try to predict what products are hot, how much we should be in stock of a certain item and all those kind of cool things. Like a lot of e-commerce companies, you've enlisted artificial intelligence to help you maximize sales. Very sci-fi. What role does AI play in your operations? Yeah, so over time, as the data sets got bigger and bigger, the machine learning data models that we built were beginning to predict some of those next purchases more and more accurately. And so definitely leading on those models to let us know like which types of customers are going to be very valuable for us over time, what they might like over time on their next shop. All those things are starting to be available to us because the data sets are getting so big now that we have millions and millions of customers. Well, your company is clearly hugely successful, but I'm wondering, is there a low point you worried it might not work? And can you tell me a story about that? Oh my gosh, being an entrepreneur, I mean, like, you know, before the end of the day, you probably have like three low points, you know, (laughs) Uh, before lunch, you know, Uh, but but, uh, kidding aside, in the very beginning, it was about the second month that we were in business, still sitting in a garage. 
you know, surrounded by a few folks that had quit their high paying jobs in technology to join us in this mission. And for two days in a row, we got zero orders. And so here we were just sitting on items that every human being in the United States use, like toilet paper, paper towels, diapers, like that kind of stuff. And so like I had to check, is the internet connected to this thing? Like (laughs) what happened, you know? And so definitely got a few kind of anxious stares from those folks that left their high paying jobs to, to live the stream with us. So that was one of them. And I got to say, it sounds like in the early days, it wasn't glamorous. You were the one who was picking all the orders yourself, packing them in boxes yourself. What did you learn while doing that part of the job? Because a lot of CEOs never actually get in there and physically do the job. Chris, and I learned how to do the job. So meaning that it's so important, I think, for at least our culture, for folks to know that the managers, everyone that comes into the company needs to know how the fulfillment centers work. And they actually work in the fulfillment centers, even nowadays for a day or two before joining kind of whatever department they'll eventually join. So really setting the tone and understanding what everyone is going through, I think brought me a lot of credibility. And at the same time, provided me with a lot of knowledge of knowing kind of what the challenges are for someone that's picking and packing, you know, eight, 10 hours a day. Mm. Now, back in those early days when you were still figuring things out, when you were boxing things yourself, when you were panicking about the other companies trying to get into the same space as you, were you also thinking about how to improve the customer experience? The entire time. So you're really, you know, at the end of the day, you know, no matter what you do, you have customers and you have to think about like why a customer would want to shop with you. And so we did think that, of course, there's the convenience aspect. Of course, there's the pricing aspect. But as you get further down the list, keeping the app really clean and slick, making sure that we're friendly on customer service, using normal language and, and acting like normal humans when, when someone calls or emails us. And then even little things like handwritten notes in the box for every customer, it sets yourself apart because there's a lot of places to buy cookies online and offline. And so we want to keep those customers that they originally chose us. So I have to ask about these personal notes you include with every order. Your team writes things like, thanks for your order, or in the summertime, things like, enjoy your summer. And most online retailers aren't taking the time to write kind personal notes in every box. What do you hear from your customers about that? To this day, customers still love it. Yes, it takes time to do them. No, they're not auto pen. A lot of our customers think they're auto pen. That we just have a, <laughs> like a Sharpie machine. It's not that. Uh, someone's actually here working hard to pack your order and, and kind of writing that little note uh, as the order goes out the door. So customers have loved it. It is one of those accoutrements that they'll cite in surveys to say, that's a differentiator for me. And, and it brings a little smile to my face every time I order from these folks. Now, I, one thing I find really interesting is you have all these personal touches, but you're also, you know, a company of technology. You're working in an industry that moves really fast. It's, you know, uh, changing all the time. And I understand you're also using robots in the warehouse. Do do I have that right? The robot thing is is definitely wild. And I'd say that's probably one of the wildest things that I, I still have to pinch myself over every morning is that some of the, the best engineers of Box put together this autonomous guided vehicle to roam around the fulfillment center. And our newest FCs now are all automated using this robot that we literally built uh, ourselves. And so you'll see a train of these robots walking together. I think a lot of people when they hear, oh no, robots, uh, you are not getting the robots to replace the humans though. And, you know, 
your company is very famously very good to its employees. You set a very high bar for how you take care of them. Can you tell us about some of the benefits you offer your workers that maybe people don't know about? Yeah, you know, on that front, it's so, it's so it's so unfortunate that what I'm about to say is rather contrarian in that we treat our frontline employees very well. It, it's become like something that's applauded rather than expected. We provide our employees with a strong benefits package, a strong workplace offering, and a real career path. For many of these folks, it's the first time they've ever been on a real career path working an hourly job. And so in return, we also get net benefits to our bottom line. So we offer them free healthcare, stock options in the company, paid time off, a $500 emergency fund uh, Mm. if they have a sudden bill they need to pay. And depending on how long they've been with us, they also get up to $20,000 to pay for life-changing events, whether they're happy events like a wedding or whether they're sad events like a catastrophic illness in the family. And as a result, the average hourly tenure is over two years. And in a fulfillment center experience, it's rare that the average hourly employee to be two to three years uh, with you when most other companies um, out there are turning over the entire building every single year. Mm. Um, so good for them and, and good for us. One way I really see you being more innovative than a lot of other companies is that you don't just treat your employees well, but you let them be a part of your innovation. Uh, you do certain things with your company that were you know, by the suggestion of your own staff, right? Yeah. So the fun part is one to two times a year, we have hackathons around Box. And you don't need to be an engineer to be a part of the hackathon. For people who don't know what a hackathon is, can you explain exactly what that is? Yeah. So a hackathon is really when engineers or other business folks come together and just hack something together. It's, it does, it's not meant to be something that you're going to present to customers right away, but you're just basically hacking together over the course of a few hours or a few days a really novel solution to a problem that's uh, afflicting your customer base or or the company. Mm-hmm. And the only promise at the end of the hackathon is that first prize will be commercialized. So some of the best, like the robots I mentioned before, those carts, autonomous guided vehicles, that was part of a hackathon. We also have a camera system where, you know, on your shipping confirmation, it says your box took a selfie and we show uh, the contents of your box as it goes out the door. So all those things came from hackathons, you know, getting everyone into a room, partnering with folks that they otherwise might not partner with in their normal day jobs and letting their imaginations run free for a few days or a week. It's produced some of the coolest stuff around the company. Yeah. And I just, I got to shout out one thing that you all do there that it was, if I understand correctly, a staff suggestion, which was get rid of the pink tax for the customers. First of all, I'll let you explain what the pink tax is and how have your customers reacted to that? The pink tax is really a societal and legislative tax on all things pink and all things woman-facing. In 30-plus states in America, tampons and pads and feminine care products are taxed as if they're not essentials, as if they're almost like luxury products, where in some of those same jurisdictions, Rogaine and condoms are not taxed because they are essential. And so what a racket. You know, it's Mm. like, you can't say that with a straight face if you've known any woman in your life, you know? Um, (laughs) And so we rebate that tax that we still have to legislatively collect from our customers. We rebate it back to our customers in the price. Mm -hmm. So it's as if they didn't have to pay it. There's also the societal tax of saying, hey, this razor is a similar technology, but because it's a pink handle, it costs 40% more than the one with the blue handle. That's a racket too. And and we rebate that, that back to our customers. And so the majority of our customers are female. 
uh, and our customers really like it. Yeah, and I got to say, it's like the perfect marriage between, you know, the human experience for the customer and the behind-the-scenes technology also. I mean, all of that stuff is really taking innovation and technology and putting them together in a way that, you know, I, I, I think belies a lot of people's ideas. When they think about technology, they, they think it's inhuman, but you very much yep. believe in the human side, right? Very much so. I, I believe in a world where technology and humans that relationship is more symbiotic in nature rather than a replacement of one versus the other. The, the reason is like, there's still a lot of things that a human can do very quickly, very efficiently that a robot can't do. And that's picking random objects, oblong in shape, standardized in shape, knowing which item to pick and placing it very quickly, very efficiently in a certain location. That seems pretty crazy. But if you think about those robotic arms out there, it's very difficult for something to pick up this little lip balm this way. But, oh, look, there's a big box of cookies. I need to use two hands and pick it up this way. So I do feel like symbiotic, a marriage of art and science, is probably the best outcome uh, and, and probably the most likely outcome. Jay, thank you so much for joining me on The Relentless. Your energy and enthusiasm, your love for humans and for robots, they are all so infectious. And you make me feel like I, I need to start another business. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun. It is so exciting to talk with someone who's taking on some of the biggest companies in the world and finding success doing it. But those same forces that Che dealt with are facing entrepreneurs in every industry. Real estate is no different. Disruptive tech and apps are changing that field too. My next guest has tackled the challenges posed by technology head on, and she's thrived doing it. Tracy Hutton is the CEO of Century 21 Sheets in the Indianapolis area, and she embodies the tireless spirit and dedication to customers we're continuing to uncover this season on The Relentless. Tracy, hello, and welcome to the show. Well, hello. Thanks so much. Now, Tracy, you got started in the business really young. Can you tell us about your first job in a real estate office? Yes, I was that person that on the weekends that answered the phones and helped agents in a small real estate office. It was a great entry into what the day in the life of a realtor looked like. And how old were you at the time? You know, I, I was 15 years old. Oh I gosh. always wanted, you know, I, I wanted to be independent. I didn't want to have to ask my parents for money and them tell me no. So I figured the best way to get around that was to go earn it myself. So I started and really never looked back. Wow. I love that. I love that you were in the business at an age where most people aren't even old enough to drive yet. By the time you were 37, you yourself became an owner. And I'm curious, coming into a role like that without being related to the original business owners, being someone who entered as just a kid who wanted some money on the weekends, and the field being very male-dominated, I mean, it, it seems pretty unusual to me. Can you tell us about that relentlessness that drove you forward to that position? Well, I would love to say that it, that vision of where I wanted to be in, in my life and career started at 15, it, it didn't. I look back at a younger version of myself and said, if that girl was answering the phones on the weekends for me, I probably would have fired her. <laughs> but, um, you, you know, you, that's just part of growing up, right? However, I it was it was through that initial job that I got 
opportunities within the real estate industry. So after college, I got an opportunity to go into title insurance sales. So I saw another segment of the business. And then three years after that, my current business partner, Mick Sheets, who founded Century 21 Sheets, hired me to start his corporate relocation division. And so, you know what, I, I would attribute a lot of it to having a mentor in my life that constantly encouraged me. And really painted a picture that I could do great things sometimes when I was at a young age and uncertain about my destiny. It comes down to being in the right place at the right time and seizing an opportunity and running with it. Mm. I, I really think that speaks to the kind of leader you are, though, that you don't just give credit to yourself. You know, saying that you had mentors and that, you know, people believed in you along the way. I feel like a lot of people don't do that. And, and you definitely are giving credit but it's not just about them. You also grew the brokerage firm to nine offices. How, how did you strategize that growth? I'm a competitor. I like to compete. I like <laughs> the rush of competition. I love challenges. And I love when people tell me I can't do something. It's just, you know, I'm going to go figure out a way to do it. My mentor and partner now was an entrepreneur, and he kind of gave me that bug and gave me enough rope to go out and, you know, figure it out. Mm. And so I, I saw we were a single office at the time, and I looked at other brokerages in our market area and across the country and looked at what they did right and how do you go emulate, right? And how do you learn from maybe things you see people do that aren't right um, or didn't work out so well? And I just started painting a vision of what I thought we could create. So I'm constantly chasing the best version of Century 21 Sheets. How do we make it better um, tomorrow than we were today? Uh, how am I better as a leader tomorrow um, versus how I am today? And that that leads to a continual growth environment. And then, you know, your, your competition is going to do what your competition is doing. But as long as we show up to be the best that we can be and service our customers in the best possible way we know how to, um, we'll win in the long run. I'm curious, you know, right now we have a lot of competition from disruptive tech and apps that are probably luring potential clients. I, I will confess myself, I sometimes stay up late at night and I am scrolling on those apps. I am loving it. But what are some of the ways that that affects your work and how are you rising to that challenge? Well, I think one thing that we're constantly staying focused on is how is tech and innovation adding to or taking away from the consumer experience? And really it boils down to how, how is it um, simplifying or complicating the consumer experience? There's a lot of voices out there. There's a lot of apps. There's a lot of text. There's a lot of communication channels that are happening. Put yourself in the seat of a consumer, in the shoes of a consumer, searching for a home. And all the different variations of communication that is coming across them via response to leads, text messages, phone calls. I do this often because I think it's so important to stay close to that consumer experience. I inquired on a listing on a platform. And I want to tell you how uneasy it was for me to see the experience I received from endless text messages, phone calls. I mean, they were calling me from other parts of the country, which doesn't, didn't resonate with me searching for a home right in my local community. I mean, it was, it was stressful. Like I, 
I couldn't even get on with my day because I had so much disruption. And is that what we want for the consumer when they think about buying or selling real estate? So I think we got to look at how does it help us deliver the service, but also how does it impact the consumer experience from the tech platforms that we put in place to run, help run our business seamlessly? The whole home buying experience can be so confusing, so stressful. What are some things you think realtors can do, Tracy, to make the home buying process less confusing and stressful? From, from a realtor standpoint, there are two things that we can do. Number one, take the time to set clear expectations before you ever get started. Uh, because if there is alignment there, um, it will most certainly be um, a stellar experience. Number two is set a path for a communication cadence that works for anyone that's involved in the transaction. What I am seeing is erratic communication throughout real estate transactions, which is causing confusion and chaos and missteps, meaning people are delivering communication in three or four different ways. They're delivering it via text message, in an instant to get it off their list. The inspection came back great or that the well sample came back great. I'm just going to text people real quick. Well, they're getting pinged with all that information throughout the day and it's not in an orderly fashion, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that... Oh, um, I've been there, yeah. <laughs> it, it, right? You can relate. Like, oh my gosh, oh my I got another text gosh, from so the other agent. And it came from this from person and not this person and a different email address. And Right. And what if we just said every every evening at 5 p.m. or every three days or every Friday, you're going to get an update with me on how... And this is the is the best communication style. Would you like to do this in person? Would you like to do it um, via email? So we've got to develop that cadence and follow that structure because when there's certainty about that, then the confidence rises. I wish every real estate agent was like you. <laughs> well, hey, I, I've had a lot of years in the business. <laughs> you You obviously bring so much more experience to your interactions with clients than they could ever get from an app. So... How do you strategize with your agents about improving customer experience then? I think you've got to constantly check every day on how you show up, how you show up in the conversations that you're having, how you show up um, in the meetings that you're having, how you show up when you're showing a home. Are you simplifying it? Are you giving them the information that they need, not that you want to give them, but that they need and that they um, require to make an informed decision? So I, I think often we think about what does it do to help us versus how are we focusing on them? So I think the experience probably brings better clarity around the right questions to ask when it comes to tech innovation, um, there's a lot out there. I mean, I probably get five people reaching out to me a day wanting to pitch some new tech platform that's going to change the landscape of our brokerage, our agents, or the consumer. And the 20-some years of experience has given me probably the ability to ask the right questions. You do so much to improve the customer experience without even using technology. Can you give us some specific examples of how you improve that customer experience without even technology being involved? Well, the customer experience really begins and ends with the realtor. The realtor that is helping serve that buyer or seller. 
So it comes down with attracting and retaining the right talent within your organization that is committed to doing that. So are agents, are our realtors learning from the feedback we're getting from customers? Are we taking it seriously or are we dismissing it? The minute we take customer feedback and we discard it or we try to justify, defend, or explain, you know, maybe when we don't get the highest level of customer service score that we want um, is the time we stop growing and learning. So I think it's who you affiliate with, who you do business alongside of is what elevates the customer experience. All of this is, you know, it's taking all the innovations that are already in the world and saying you still need a human involved. And so it's just so inspiring to listen to you talk about that and why the human side of things uh, regardless of where the future and where innovations take us, you can't take the human out of the equation. And you make that so clear in how you talk. So I just love it. Oh, well, good. Tracy, thank you so much for this. It's been so great talking with you today. Thank you, Kristen. It's been my pleasure. The Relentless is produced by Slate Studios in partnership with Century 21 Real Estate. You can find out more about the guests you heard in today's show and discover more great material from our Century 21 partners at slate.com slash relentless. I'm Kristen Meinzer. Thanks so much for listening. And please join us next time. All rights reserved. Nothing herein is intended to create an employment relationship. Century 21 Real Estate LLC fully supports the principles of the Fair Housing Act and the Equal Opportunity Act. Each office is independently owned and operated. This material may contain suggestions and best practices that you may use at your discretion.